0: The demand for energy is
1: accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis.
0: This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at halliburtonlabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hey there listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Energy scale podcast. I'm your host, Jose Solis, and today I am joined by Gustavo Sanchez. Gustavo is the co-founder of Pandata Tech. Here in Houston, Gustavo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Awesome. Awesome, man. If you wouldn't mind, would you give the listeners just a little bit of your bio so they can get some familiarity with you today? I, if I can talk.
1: Yeah, for sure. So the number one thing that people should take away from my background is what you said. I'm one of the co-founders, of the Pandata Tech. Everything else takes a backseat. But undergrad, I did economic modeling, which is very mathematically involved, like zero finance, It's, it's essentially an applied data science degree before data science was an actual buzzword. Worked in, as a data scientist in different finance markets, moved to oil and gas, where I was doing a lot of business development and market analysis. So moved away a little bit from the technical side, more into the business side. I represented different American companies in Andean markets. So you're talking Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, places down south. And I went to get a graduate degree. I got an MBA focused in quantitative modeling because I knew I wanted to start a company. And we can get into that later. And now in Pandata Tech, I lead all the technical aspects of it as well as all the technical sales, which I guess you could bucket it in a technical aspect as well.
0: So you rounded out all of your experiences so that, I mean, you sort of already knew that you were going to go into entrepreneurship, but what was it that drove you to go into entrepreneurship? Was that something that like, I've always known this or somebody like, is it historical in your family? Like there's people who are entrepreneurs in your family or was it just something that you knew you wanted to do yourself?
1: Yeah, my dad's an entrepreneur. So that obviously kind of set the example. Now, my mom was a lawyer, but she had her own practice. So you could, that's also in a way entrepreneurship there. So I always had that example. Now, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this out loud, but in undergrad, I wasn't the best student. <laughs> so, like, you know, so when you can't put your GPA, I didn't have a bad GPA, but it wasn't, you know, 3.9 and so on. So, you know, when you're applying for the big jobs, if you can't put that 3.9 in the corner. It's very competitive for you to get the big job. So an alternative is, you know what, I'm just going to make my own job. Now, I also don't have a Ph.D. in data science, which a lot of the big companies think it's required to do data science. So again, what's the alternative? It's create my own job in the field and what I want to do. Thankfully, it's panned out great. It's been successful.
0: It's interesting you say that. I think, you know, especially when people are just entering the job market, coming straight out of school, obviously they're putting a lot of emphasis on what their GPA was. But eventually after a few years of experience, that tends to fall off and nobody cares anymore, right? Like- can you do the work? Can you get the job done? Are you good at it? Do I even like you? Would I want to drink a beer with you? Right? Like that becomes more important than it is like, well, what was your GPA?
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. But obviously when you're out of school, I guess I didn't have the academic maturity to kind of realize that was important to get the big jobs. (laughs) But you're absolutely right. Once you prove yourself in the big role, then you can kind of move on to bigger companies. So- I
0: looked over your website and I got a little bit of a feel for what your company does. And We met at an event during the Houston Tech Rodeo Week, which was a lot of fun, put on by Halliburton Labs at the ION. And we talked a little bit about what you were doing. And obviously, we're having just casual conversation you know, with the groups and whatnot. But if you wouldn't mind, just kind of dig into a little bit more about what Pandata does and how you guys have come up with the product lines. Let's go from there.
1: Yeah. Okay, perfect. I'll start with an elevator pitch and tell you the story of how we got there because that's a good story, actually. So elevator pitch, what we do is we help energy companies and federal agencies, so you're talking DOD and government, reduce the time and the cost they take to clean and validate time series data. Now, why is this important? It's important because 80% of a data professional's time is spent cleaning and validating data. And any deployed algorithms so inference algorithms, things that algorithms that are supposed to predict maintenance, automation, and things like that. They can miss upwards of fifty percent of predictable events. Not to mention the predictions that they miss. So they can be very unreliable unless they have access to fully validated data. Now that also carries the cyber cybersecurity implications. In decision systems, we can get into that later because that's a separate elevator pitch, but if we want to talk about the cybersecurity implications because that's important to the DoD, we should. Now, essentially, we, you've heard the same garbage in, garbage out, right? Right,
0: yeah, yep. Yeah,
1: so everybody knows that. Now, obviously, it applies to all these AIs, predictive maintenance and whatnot, and I'm going to keep using the example of predictive maintenance because that's kind of the low-hanging fruit. There's a lot of people that do it, a lot of people creating products, a lot of people providing services, so it's a very crowded space. And in 2016, when we started the business, that's in fact the idea we had. We had the idea that everybody else has. Let's do predictive maintenance and let's use these AI and advanced methods to do predictive maintenance. We were a little bit late to the party. You know, G was just launching Predix. So that was big buzz. So it was hard to market with all the noise around Predix at the time. Things have changed now. And then you had all these other startups that were funded foreign, bigger. And sexier than we were that we're also doing predictive maintenance. The funny thing is that they all do other things now because it's still really hard to do predictive maintenance properly. (laughs) Everybody pivots outside of the space. So we eventually meet up with one of the, and I I won't use a lot of names, but we met up with one of the bigger offshore drilling contracts. And we went and we pitched them this predictive maintenance thing. And their feedback was we hired and fired all kinds of different companies. They said they could do a predictive maintenance because they couldn't give us a model that could predict anything. It was incredibly unreliable, so what we we brought that in house, and they had built a phenomenal digital twin algorithm that was physics based to predict the maintenance of their blow up prevention equipment, and they were already building another one for the tripping, okay This is all subsea super complicated stuff. And they had their own PhDs, university PhDs, like it was it's a hell of an algorithm. <laughs> so they go ahead and test it, and it turns out it's also unreliable. But you know, these physics don't lie. So they kept going over and over again, and it turns out it wasn't the algorithm. So when we were pitching this predictive maintenance stuff, we didn't have a lot of like IP or anything, because we still hadn't even had a first paid engagement. So the guy that was running the innovation department wanted to test us technically. So he asked to see, like, essentially the analytics under the hood, like our process, so that he can see if we were legit data scientists or not. So we were like, we got nothing to do. As we show them. and he was impressed enough that he said, you know what? I have this other problem, which is I believe the data in my store is trash, and that's what's fooling my algorithm. Right. So I know that I have this garbage, unvalidated data there. And that's what's going into my predictive maintenance. And that's what's making that unreliable. So if you can solve that issue, we can go ahead and work together. So it all started there.
0: Wow. So they built these models or they built these, you know, predictive maintenance analytical models or whatnot. And they assumed that they had a working model, but then realized it doesn't work. And they started to think about like what could be the problem. And then the problem was it was bad data or the data was like not valid or clean. Right. So you had to help them fix that. Yeah.
1: So I guess this is kind of where we get into some of like what we're doing as far as validating data. And I'll kind of put this caveat. When I talk about bad data, like that's probably not the best word to refer to it, but it's an easy word to use it, so I'll still right. slip and use it. But it's more about unqualified data. It's like, I don't know if this is valid for a specific algorithm. So what we want to understand, it's not only, okay, is there missing values, right? Because when people think data quality, they're like, oh, so you do missing values, outliers and anomaly detection. Well, yes, that's embedded in the product because that's basic, but that's not what the technology does. What we're able to tell you is whether a specific data stream is relevant, valid, accurate, and reliable. But it, the bigger thing, is it relevant and valid for the algorithm it's going into? Is it going to give you a false alarm? If it's going to give you a false positive and a false negative. So going back a little bit to that meeting, they're like we can give you five weeks. If you convince me you can solve this, which we did in the meeting, we can give you five weeks to do a POC, quick and dirty code. Just prove to me that you can solve the problem. So the hypothesis was, is that if we can predict the behavior, the intrinsic behavior, a signal of a sensor. So for example, a pressure subsea in a BOP should behave a certain way. And what is normal, right? If we can do that robustly for a hundred mystery signals that are offshore, then it means we can create a product around it, right? We can validate the data. So they gave us five weeks. They gave us 100 mystery signals without telling us what it was. And it's like, all right, if you can tell me what, like, each one of these others, like, you know, which one's the pressure, which one's the hook load, which one's this, which one's sub C. And all these different signals, then it means that you can do what you said. It means you can, you know, validate based on behavior. It was the worst five weeks of my life, but we were able to do it with like 88%, like 88%. And it was like, okay, great. We proved that we could do it. And that was kind of the beginning of the rest of it. Then with them, like the second engagement was building the API. And then we moved on to work with the DOD, some energy applications. But essentially that's what it was. It was about at the very beginning, it was about creating a method that can validate the behavior and signals.
0: Wow. So they gave you a five week proof of concept timeline. Says so come up with this. You got five weeks. If you can do it, we'll we'll move forward. If you can't, well then here, you know, don't let the door hit you on the way out. That's
1: exactly it. It was five weeks to either have a company or like, I don't know, do something else.
0: So at the time, it was just you and your co-founder working on it or did you have other people working on this project as well?
1: No, we did. So one of the things that was very important to me was have some sort of insurance policy. (laughs) So there's a local partners of ours that is very small boutique consulting firm that have some talented people. So at the beginning, and still now, they still back us up in a lot of things. They were my insurance policy. I hired two of them to come on the team for this, to back me up. Okay. So we, we had redundancy and different methods we were going to try. We had all kinds of like different of it. So that was great. But I also did have internal people, like our internal developers, myself. We had a data analyst, all internal
0: Wow. That sounds like it was a pretty stressful event, but luckily you got through it. And you sort of alluded to it, but I want to touch on that a little bit more, talking about working with government entities. Because I think this is something that's really interesting, especially for the energy sector, because there's so many things that people make, services and products in the energy sector that are applicable to government buyers that might not understand like the opportunity, but also the process of doing business with U.S. government entities. Can you talk to that a little bit and what that was like for your company and kind of how you went about it?
1: Yeah, for sure. Now, I guess the best play to start is the Department of Defense is the biggest employer in the world. They have everything. And part of the critical infrastructure that they manage is power generation, distribution facilities, water treatment, you know, energy so starting there, even if you make chemical injection pumps for the oil field, the DOD can be your customer because there's chemical injection for all the water facilities. And you'd be surprised at the crazy energy stuff that they do. To It's incredible. Like you just wouldn't think about it, but they are. Now, another thing that people say, oh, but the government takes so long. Well, have you tried to sell to an oil and gas operator? The sales <laughs> cycles are also a year and two years. In some instances, depending on the program, the DOD can be faster or the government can be faster than the energy industry. Oh, but another thing people will say, oh, it's risky because if you lose your customer, you're essentially losing a lot of revenue. Well, if your major customer is a big company like Exxon Shell or Chevron, well, if you lose that customer, well, you run the same thing. So you run the same risk, whether it's the government, the DOD, or whether you're an oil and gas service provider and like Shell's your banker customer. They can also fire you. In fact, it's easier for them to fire you. (laughs) So just getting those out of the way, because that's what we've heard from like investors and partners. And it's like, you know, that the reality is completely the opposite of that. They're just another customer. Now, the way we got in is the government has programs for for small businesses. They define a small business as someone with less than 500 employees, 51% or more owned by American citizens, individuals, not companies. And it can't be owned majority by like uh, private equity and VCs because then they count all the other employees of the companies they own in. So you may go over that 500. Ah, so see. first things first, so like if you're small, you know, less than 500 employees, like you're, so if you're a startup and you got 10 employees, you're likely good to go. Especially if you probably, you know, the founders and obviously they have to be American citizens. They still own over 51%. You're good to go. Now this program has two things, either grants, or actual service contracts, right? So it's the SBIR, they call it the SIBR. So we'll call it that from now on. You can either get a grant, which is not real revenue. It's a grant, it's non-legal of funding, which carries different implications on how you have to account for it or whatever. We haven't done that. We've used the program for service contracts, which is revenue, just like any other service contract in in the world. So that's another thing that's a misconception. Oh, if you're in the SIBR world, you're getting grants and that's not revenue. No, the summer grants, correct, but there's other contracts that are revenue with milestones. The language is service contracts and they can fire you if you don't hit the milestones in the contract. So they're contract. Right, right. right. So that's the way we went. The Air Force has probably been the best branch of the military that's taken advantage of this. There's an organization called AFWRX, A F W E R X, which they run these open topic solicitations. Where essentially you have to prove to them that you understand the use case within their organization, within the Air Force or Space Force, about your technology. So if you're doing, again, we'll stay away from the technology because it's easy to, or away from the AI and data validation, because it's easy to understand they have that need. But if you're selling chemical injection, well, a lot of the bases manage their own water. So if you can prove that you can have chemical injection pumps that are special and better, and that base X can benefit from this, they'll bring you in and they'll give you these contracts. Now, there's different types of contracts. There's small $50,000 contracts and there's big $1.5 million contracts and there's a whole life cycle of them. Obviously, you start at the bottom, you work your way up and I guess, I mean, if you want to go down that route, it'll be another 30 minutes, (laughs) but it should be enough to kind of get people like Googling and stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you talked about a little bit, but would you say would it be worth maybe the money to hire somebody who specializes in government contracting, or you know, is it something that with X amount of time? because I look at it and I say, well, there's so many things that go into government contracting that that are like unique to government contracting that people didn't understand, don't understand. What would you recommend? I mean, having gone down that road, looking back on it, if you could have hired somebody to help kind of walk through the acquisition process, is that something that you would have optioned for?
1: Well that's the thing with entrepreneurship. Even if you're just in the private world, you know how they always say that the founder should close the first handful of deals? So I believe it would be the same for the government. Close your first deal with the government. Go get that first fifty K contract. Go get that first seven hundred and fifty thousand dollar contract. Once you have that cash flow and you want to get two, three, four more of those, yeah, bring someone in to help. Okay. But at the very beginning, like if you only have a hundred K to spend maybe that's not the best avenue. But if you do have 255, I don't know. Well, yeah, you know, these are just random numbers. Yeah. But if you do have some level of disposable cash flow for operations and exploring new markets, it's absolutely a great avenue. Close the first one yourself because it really isn't rocket science. It's just reading documentation. Yeah. And then once you can then prove that you can do it, it's something you want to do, then bring someone to help you scale that.
0: And I know the SBA also has resources. Like if you go to the SBA, they can also kind of help. They have people that come in and actually that's what they specialize in. They can kind of talk you through some of the processes when it comes to bidding on government contracts, whether it be local or federal. So I would probably be something I would use as a tool as well.
1: Yeah, not only the SBA. The SBA has one of those offices, but every unit, every branch, every federal organization has a small business group. Okay. Even like Air Force bases have like at that smaller level, like the base, like they may have like a couple of people that work with the work on the small business that they can help you point you in the direction, how to do things. You can even get aid and help in writing the proposals from community colleges. I mean, it's just about finding the right place, but there's plenty available free help from government colleges and people in the space that can help you that first time around.
0: Excellent. Excellent. All right, so let's come back a little bit to Pandata, and let's talk a little bit about the data quality method that you guys have developed.
1: Yeah, so for sure, I think the biggest thing, we can start with defining what is data quality or the way we define it. And again, I'll say this again, which is, it's not about missing values, outliers, and anomaly detection, because again, anybody can do that. But it's about understanding outside of that, on top of that, whether the data is accurate, reliable, valid, and relevant for a specific process, what is it intended for, and the way we're able to answer all those questions, plus the basic stuff, is a four-step iterative process that we inspired. That you know, essentially, we are inspired by a data management norm, the ISO 8000, where the first step is about making sure the data is complete. Data without metadata is incomplete, so we make sure that the appropriate metadata is defined. You'd be surprised how many people think of temperatures in Fahrenheit when it's in centigrade and there's a lot of mistakes that happen because of that little thing. <laughs> like That happens all the time. It's pretty funny, but it's true. So, you know, and again, nothing special there. That's just good best practice, data management, do that at the database, have that informed, ready to go. Okay, so that's step one. Step two is what we call intrinsic validation, where we do run data quality checks on each data point, each timestamp. A sample of the signal. And this can be as simple as okay, what's the max and what's the min? Again, looking for the outliers, looking for the anomalies, looking for different states. This is essentially the incumbent way of doing it, which is a lot of business logic, a lot of, and it's not very robust, but, you know, it's just good practice to have these things. Now, the third step is where things get real special. This is essentially our Coca Cola formula or Google algorithm, you know, like our secret sauce or IP, which is where, we have a signal processing based on physics, a signal processing based on physics node that can create hundreds or thousands of specifications for each individual data stream sensor or channel. So each temperature, each pressure, each vibration, each any time series will, depending on the availability of the data, we can generate hundreds or thousands of specifications. Now, this is what validation is. Once you have these specifications, you need to compare against the specifications. That's validations. For that, we use AI. So we use this physics-created dataset to train the AI algorithms on what valid data is. The reason this is special is because since it's signal processing physics and not system-specific physics, it's scalable across use cases. So we'll talk about that. But we've done offshore, subsea, dynamic positioning, dry tools, geothermal closed-loop systems, smart cities, infrastructure. We've done a few use cases. And we're able to do that because it's not system physics. It's signal processing physics.
0: When you say system physics, not system processing physics, can you kind of, I mean, kind of break that down for me a little bit?
1: Yeah. So if I'm doing physics for a specific compressor to validate the data and I write a program that like this is the specific like physics formula of the system, like for the system, the temperature should always look like this specific for that compressor. When I try to do that on a pump in a completely different industry, that's not going to translate. So that's the system physics. So the physics of the system, it's being monitored in this case, a compressor. We do it intrinsically at the signal level. So we can use our physics at scale for essentially any system.
0: So it's not specific. Okay. I think I understand what you're saying. So it's not specific to just, it's specific to that component, not just overall. Is that right? Something like that.
1: So it's not specific to the system it's being monitored. Like, So it's not domain. It's not specific to oil drilling. It's not specific to compression. I can grab the same physical calculation and create specifications for geothermal pumps to hook load drilling. It doesn't matter what it is. I can just use it in virtually any time series. Versus if I had a system physics, I can only do it for that type of compressor.
0: Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. So you've created it to where you can use it across different, like, applications right so it's not just it's not bound by one app, like this is not the only application you can use it for you can use it for other applications
1: correct and what we can get from this created data set that we trained the ai to validate its behavior because there's so many of these specifications now it's trained on every possible dynamic state it's trained on different events so it's very robust now then After we do all these three different steps of checks, of validation checks and verifications, then we create a definition of quality for all the different data streams. And based on those checks, then each one of those data streams or sensors or time series, whatever you want to call them, will get a value between zero and 100. 100 being perfect quality, zero being absolute trash. Right. Obviously, you can kind of dig in and see why it's bad quality, where the checks filled, why the data looks wonky. But it's that first comprehensive layer of like, okay, you know, if it's 100, I don't even need to look at it. If it's 30% quality, I need to understand why it's 30% quality.
0: And sort of like what your tagline says. So you're really looking to be able to make critical decisions off this data. So you're grading the data based off of its accuracy, right? So you know, like with a certain percentage of accuracy that you can make a decision and that it's the right decision.
1: Correct. And the decision is what our customers do. We just manage the data. We take it from a data management perspective where it's like, we're going to help you understand what data can generate false positives, what data can generate false negatives, and we're just going to tell you when it's fully validated. The decision you make, but now you have data you can trust, so you can trust your decision.
0: And so when companies hire you guys and they, they engage you, I mean, what are probably some of the most common challenges that they're trying to solve for? Like you've mentioned a little bit about you know just getting like information from their IoT, from their rigs offshore, or is there any specific core common issues that you've seen reoccurring that or is it usually always like we need something very specific? You know, like this is you know a unique problem.
1: Yeah. So, have you heard this stat? The big consulting companies publish this, and they all kind of agree, where they say that seventy percent of digital transformations have failed. Like in the past few years, have you heard that?
0: I know that you know implementing new technology usually has a high record of failure because implementation is not done correctly. Like bringing in new technology doesn't really, it doesn't always solve a problem.
1: Yeah. So that's part of it. And that's exactly one of the things they say. So I'll talk about the other things they say. The other things they say, why 70% of these digital transformations fails is one, like the people in the culture, you know, they're management consulting companies, so they have to sell their people. They say that, I do believe that to be true though, as well. But what falls in our category is that they don't have the digital infrastructure to do the last part of the product, so companies will go in and say, "Okay, we're going to invest in predictive maintenance." All right? We'll continue to use this example. So they'll forget about all the digital infrastructure and they'll grab a couple data scientists, super smart people, engineers, domain experts in whatever they're trying to predict the maintenance on, and they'll build a really good algorithm in their computer on their sandbox. So they're using the you know a very specific curated data set that they spend a lot of time curating that they only have to do it once because they're prototyping. So it works really well there. Now they think they have this incredible predictive maintenance algorithm. And when they deploy it, turns out, well, it only worked on that local computer on that demo, but it doesn't really add any value. In fact, it hurts us a lot more. That's when companies realize that meeting we had two years ago, we were onto something, right? So we already had talked about it, about data validation, data quality on the enterprise. And, you know, they're like, yeah, we kind of see it. We kind of not. And then they'll go out, They'll spend the money, they'll deploy something that doesn't work, and then they'll usually come back to us and say, hey, let's get back to having that conversation because I think we were onto something then. So that's the biggest challenge for us. It's, I don't know if you want to call it maybe, I don't want to call it hubris, but from this view, because it really is not, but it's just the investment in the domain before they invest in the infrastructure.
0: I get what you're saying. So could I equate that to, let's say, like if I want to take... Run some preventive maintenance, you know, AI on, let's say, for instance, my home, but I don't have like a smart thermometer. I don't have like any digital tools, like IoT stuff. Like, let's just say it's all just standard analog, like, none of it's connected to any of my, you know, network. Like, you know, because you could connect just about every home appliance to your network now, and it can be a smart appliance from your TV to your toaster. But If I didn't have any of that in place and I wanted to run, you know, preventive maintenance on those items in my home and I tried to do that before creating the digital infrastructure, then I probably would end up, you know, it's like putting the cart before the horse.
1: Is that right? Yeah, you're putting the carpet before the horse. So it's like, I think, and again, it makes sense because the people that work in these companies are engineers. They're like, let's use the oil and gas example. Like the oil and gas people that are working on this, they're oil and gas engineers. Like it makes sense. Oh, and they can definitely create an algorithm that can predict the maintenance of a horse pump, a BOP, rig, anything. And they can do it and they can do it real well. The people that are data management people, data pipeline people, systems integration people, That's a completely different skill set that, again, you need to have the people in the companies, you need to give them a voice, and you need to listen to them, right? They're very different skill sets. The talent in the industry is so good, so high level, so domain specific that sometimes we forget about these other less domain things that are important for that to work.
0: Do you say that there's still a lot of room for improvement on putting more sensors and things like IoT things on, let's say, platforms or rigs or refineries or wherever that might be? Or do you think that we're starting to get to critical mass in that domain in the industry?
1: It depends on the operator, but for the most part, the sensors are there. Like if you go offshore, one of the like, you know, big, big companies, maybe not so much the mom and pops, they'll have forty thousand sensors there. Problem is they're only using four hundred of those sensors. So the critical mass of the sensing is there. The integration of those sensors is not because it's still siloed. So like a team of 10 people are looking at 10 sensors over here. A team of 10 people are looking at 10 sensors over there. Uh, Some are going to the OSI PI data. Some are staying on the edge. Some are used for information purposes only. So there's not so much, there's not a lot of standards on how to unsilo so that it's managed at the enterprise to reduce that cost, how to store it, how to validate it, It's those standards that are not there that we need to start hitting critical mass. But the data collection is there. It's just the digital infrastructure in between the data collection and the domain decision, like the predictive maintenance, that's ready. It's what's in between that's not ready. And that's what needs to hit critical mass for the the output of the predictive maintenance type stuff to work. I
0: got you. And how does cybersecurity tie into this?
1: Oh, okay. That's a really good question. So this is actually from our work in the DOD, right? So it's actually a pretty funny thing. So kind of, when you're talking about decision systems, right? Like an AI that's predicting automation, maintenance, optimization. So again, we'll use the example of predictive maintenance because everybody understands that. The number one digital risk to this artificial intelligence that predicts maintenance is not people from the outside hacking. It's the data that the system depends on, right? Because cybersecurity, it's about mitigating digital risk. Part of that is keeping hackers out and two-factor authentication and point protection. And those are what we call external cybersecurity risks. But there's a lot of risk in big ecosystems of sensors, the data pipelines, the data transfer that affect the quality of the data that make those algorithms unreliable. So I essentially just told you the same thing I told you 20 minutes ago, but from a cybersecurity consideration. That message is very important to the Department of Defense. They call that intrinsic or internal cybersecurity risk. Okay. Right? So, for example, in SCADA systems, which we use a lot of SCADA in the oil and gas industry as well, as they keep getting open standards and data transfer and, you know, They're bigger, better, stronger, less proprietary. That comes with a lot of cybersecurity concerns. So there's a lot of investment in, okay, the data collection, the endpoint protection, keeping the bad people out, two-factor authentication where you have to be, so on and so forth. But what happens when you have a miscalibrated sensor? What happens when good intention engineers mess up a configuration in a database? That is digital risk that affects the quality of the data and therefore affects the decision of the domain algorithm at the end of that process. So if you're validating data every time there's data transferred
0: internally to that system, then you can pinpoint where these risks come up. I get what you're saying. So in this domain, when we're talking about cybersecurity, we're not exactly talking about people hacking into your system. We're talking about internal threats where you can have issues because of basically bad data, right?
1: Yeah, a digital risk. A digital risk. There you go. A digital risk. So people, when people think cyber, they think of the hackers and the pipeline that got hacked which by the way once they hack in and they're inside and they're injecting bad data into your channel that becomes an intrinsic risk cuz they're inside right so there's also that but then that's not the only thing that create risk in big systems especially if you're trying to manage 40,000 signals at scale like you're going to have a lot of little nodes that can add risk so cybersecurity is about mitigating digital risk some of that comes in the form of hackers from the outside Bad actors can also be configurations in a data pipeline.
0: Yeah. I mean, identity access management, things like that, right? You know, looking at, you know, I think there's like separation of responsibilities and things of that nature where you're making sure that, you know, people aren't doing things by accident, not because they're being, you know, malice or anything, but accidentally making problems within your digital space, mitigating that digital risk, as you were saying. Yeah, a
1: good example specifically to what you're saying, the, the the identity access management, is you bring a new piece of equipment online into your network. Brand new, the network's been operating. You bring this new pump, this new compressor, this new whatever, you bring it on. The network has to be able to identify where the signals are coming from and what they are and whether it's allowed in the network, right? Now, you bring it in and you know how it is. You told me you've worked on the field, so you know how it is where... When they tell you to connect the cables to the IO and whatnot, it's just like, there's not a lot of instruction. Here's like a big, messy amount of cable. So you do your best. Sometimes you may have some channels flipped. So when you hook up this new thing to the network and you need to understand whether the pressure channel is actually giving you a pressure reading and not like a vibration reading, because that happens more than you think, where the cables swap. Now, that's not a bad person hacking in and swapping the channels. That's just, you know, you brought a new thing in. The cables were flipped because of human error, and that's creating bad quality data. Right? You need to be able to identify that at the beginning and monitor it throughout the whole time because when there's downtime, that happens again. Excellent. So not only identify the new thing that's on the network, but every component that's generating data of that new thing in the network.
0: Let's look down the horizon a little bit for your company and what you guys are doing. What are some of the next milestones that you guys are looking to reach? So
1: yeah, absolutely. So Everything we've built so far has been through revenue. We've bootstrapped in a way that that we're very proud of. I mean, it's not that we haven't wanted to raise funds. It's that every time we try to raise funds, like we get some sort of big contract. So then it's like, well, obviously we have to focus on this. (laughs) You know, so we're like, okay, let's just do this instead. So that's nice. It's essentially, obviously COVID hit a little bit, right? Between people working from home, being hard to sell to people at home, finding Energy executives over Zoom, over here and so on and so forth, prices going negative. So even though we've been blessed that we're having energy, a lot of energy use cases, even through COVID that we worked on, we want to reach the, the marginal growth or the level of growth we were experiencing in 2019. We were able to maintain the company, maintain the growth, just a little bit slower growth. And the way we're doing that kind of as next milestones is increase the amount of work in the private energy space. But continue to use the federal space, so the DOD space, to build more technology on top. I don't think I mentioned that, but that's one of the ways we use that market is to test and build new tech so that we can go then provide it in the private space. And the DOD is gladly will we'll do that gladly with you.
0: I guess that gives you the opportunity to not have to you know, miss opportunities because you're putting dollars into R&D, right?
1: Imagine you get a contract with like an operator's innovation department and they're like, okay, like we're going to be able to use whatever you're built through this contract with no license fee because we're building it together, but you get to keep the IP. So then you can go create a business out of that. That's essentially one of the ways you can work with the DoD as well. So we do that when we want to build new technology. So we're actually transitioning now into another bigger contract, which is to build data labeling capabilities into our technology, which is a different conversation we don't have to get into, and then turn that back around to sell it to the energy space on the private sector.
0: Interesting. Before I let you go, I've got one more question. I like to ask this every guest that comes on the show. Out of all the things that you've done, out of everything that you've picked up of skills, and what are some of the skills and habits that you developed that have helped you most over your career? Well,
1: as far as habits, is kind of taskifying everything right? Especially at the beginning where there's so much uncertainty. You're like, okay, I started, you wake up, company started. Okay, what do I do? I'm the (laughs) CEO and founder of this company. What do I do? So the best skill that I want is essentially learning how to taskify everything and just take it step by step. That's the best, like not let myself get overwhelmed by the amount of work and uncertainty, but like under whatever strategy that's been agreed with me and my co-founder, these are the tasks I'm going to do. And today I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it. Tomorrow I'm going to wake up and I'm going to do that. The second biggest thing is patience. You obviously need to figure out how to survive. Like for the first year of the company, I drove an Uber and took babysat dogs. Now to be able to like, you know, be able to have a car note and all these things. But also once you get your first 50K contract, have the patience to get that 250 because the sales cycles are long. Like this isn't consumer. You just don't put stuff in an app store and make a lot of money. You're gonna like These are very specific, slow industries. So that level of patience and expectation where you start the company, you think you're going to have a big salary in six months. Well, no, have the patience to wait two years for your good salary. That's another thing I learned the bad way, right?
0: No, I mean, I think that's great advice, especially when people, like, you know, they get these rose-colored glasses on sometimes and think, well, I'm just going to start this business and everybody's going to want to write me a check, right? Like, that's how it's going to go, right? And you know, when it doesn't go that way, you know, having that patience to understand. And I think, you know, there's a lot to be said about, you know, not just having patience, but having like the wherewithal to be able to, you know, put yourself in a situation where you know, like, I've got to do what I got to do to pay the bills, but I'm going to keep going down this road. Like, this is the path that I've chose. I'm committed to it. You know, sink or swim, I'm going to do it. That's just what's going to happen, which is not easy. It's commendable. I talk to people on the podcast. All the time that have walked many miles in these shoes and you can usually tell like <laughs> the stress that they've been put through because you just know you know when somebody's what you would call battle-hardened right they got that thousand yard stare sometimes and you yeah. just know like yeah they've been through it you know they've been through it, been and through it. it's commendable before we go i want to ask all the listeners. To enter our weekly giveaway, it's a really cool recycled backpack from Halliburton Labs. The backpack itself is not recycled. It's made out of recycled material. So you'll be doing the Earth of Solid. You can get that at the link in the show notes. Also, I'd like to ask the listeners to rate, review, and connect with any feedback that you might have. Gustavo, thank you so much for joining us today. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate you giving us a lot of detail about what you guys are doing all the work that you've put into it. I can tell that, you know, it's definitely been a journey thus far and that you're ready to hit those next milestones. And I can't wait to get you back on the show and hear about, you know, the developments since the last time we spoke.
1: For sure, man. It's been super nice. Thanks for having me. No worries.
0: We'll talk again soon.
1: Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGDN.com.